So I have this new thing, which is... Don't say golf. Nah. I think that a lot of people overthink a lot of things generally. I think that a lot of decisions and a lot of preferences are more obvious than we like to think. But, you know, we want to turn ourselves into the kind of people that are not like the people that we are now. And so we we aspire toward different standards, all of which I'm in favor of, by the way. But I think there's also a lot of pretending to ourselves about who we are and what we want and what we like and even what we're good at. And so I have this new thing oh, is when oh, I— Isn't that like a kind of— uh... A well-known bias. For instance, let's say you start a company. Mm -hmm. Everyone else says, what the heck? He's starting a company doing what? Mm -hmm. And they all see right away it's a bad idea. But you physically, you can never see that Mm -hmm. it's a bad idea. So there is a specific cognitive bias. Like, I call it, I don't know what it's called. I call it the smoke your own crack bias, Mm -hmm. which is people have a tendency to start something and they can't believe it's not good. Right, right. So what I'm thinking is a very simplistic version of that, which is how do you decide how you're going to spend your time and your resources? So, you know, I, like most people, keep a calendar. What I tend to do is like kind of midday on any given day, I will look onto the next day's calendar to start preparing for what I need to do for that. And I realized that whenever I would look at the calendar for the next day, and let's say there's four things on it, I could feel in my stomach which ones I liked and which ones I didn't. It's very, very, very obvious. And so what I tried to do from the time I realized that is just not ever put anything on the calendar that I don't really have to that I'm going to feel that my stomach is going to go down on. And I only want to put things on there that I look forward to. It's as simple as that. When I wake up today and I see on my calendar for the day, question of the day, taping with James, I feel good about it. I know that's a project I want to be doing. And the minute I start to feel like it's a downer, then see you later, James. Well, I have two points to that. One is, it reminds me of, in a kind of temporal way, um, Marie Kondo's book, I think it's called The Magic Art of Tidying Up, and she's in favor of basically throwing out almost everything, which I've done in my own house. I've done her technique, and what she suggests is, lay everything out on the ground that you own, and if you don't feel like you love that object, whether it's a book or an object or whatever, then you throw it out. So do you um do you hold it or something or do you you just look at it? You can look at it. It's the same thing. Like you have that feeling in your gut. Like if you put out a book and you're like, oh, I haven't read that yet, and I'm I don't know when I'm going to read it. You donate it to your library or whatever. Uh, what you're doing is the same thing. You're tidying up your calendar with doing only things you love. Life is short. But the flip side is somebody listening to this might say, well, listen, I have to work at my job and I don't always love that. I think you and I have tried often to the sacrifice of sanity in some cases, like our our income is extremely volatile because it's based on, let's say, writing or whatever or things not standard to a typical nine-to-five job. So our income is a lot less stable year by year, but we've sacrificed that stability to be able to put on the calendar things we've loved. Yeah, and I would say even if you don't have that kind of work life, if it's a quintessential nine-to-five, you can still find ways. All I'm saying is that it's really important to let your emotional response to your choices register loudly. Because it's easy to intellectualize, say, well, that's the thing that's really going to help me get ahead. That's the thing that da-da-da-da, it's the right thing to do. But then if you resent it or you don't want to do it, then why bother? 
even if you can't do it 100% tomorrow because of the 9-to-5 yeah. job, you can move towards that. So you can even move towards that within your job, or you can move towards that on your weekend schedule or in the people you want to spend time with. And and you could, uh, you know, start to change how you, you know, bit by 1% a day sort of thing as opposed to, like, drastic change. So this brings me to the question I bring to you today. This is from a fellow whose name is either Joe Kabloom or Joe C. Bloom. I think probably Joe C. Bloom is more likely. We'll call him Joe Kabloom because that's a less common name. Kabloomo. Kabloom. So Mr. Kabloom would like to know, what's the last thing you quit? And I'm going to add to his question, and why. So James, what's the last thing you quit and why? Oh my God, I quit things all the time. Name the last uh, three then. What have you quit since I last saw you? Since you last saw me... I haven't. We only saw we saw each other the other day. So was it? Yeah, we did questions like ages. <laughs> but uh, I, I quit in November. I uh, was going to do National Novel Writing Month. You know, that's November is. I did not know that you were going to write a novel in November. Yeah, and I did about fifty pages. Sheesh. And I quit. Yeah. So I had other stuff. That's going the last on. thing you quit, though. You said you no, quit all no, the time. But that was like a big thing. You know, you you I had whatever it is, 15,000 words written. So it was a big thing I had dedicated time to. Yeah. Even though I didn't finish it, I, I so, quit it in the so middle. So you did a great thing by not falling prey to what's called the sunk cost fallacy, right? Sunk costs are things that you've, time or money that you've already spent. And the sunk cost fallacy is the belief that a lot of people have that if you spent that time or money or even emotional energy, whatever, that the only sensible thing to do is to complete it, which is a fallacy, at least according to certain schools of thought, like economics, for instance, which says that the sunk cost fallacy is real. Where you really see that having huge ramifications is like, you know, war. If you're a country, you get involved in a war or a political standoff, whatever— it's very easy for the ego and the cost to get involved and say, well, we're two years into this. We can't just turn around and walk away. But you know you can. Well, I always tried to be aware of the question, am I smoking crack or not? Like, is this book worth continuing? Is it going to help anybody or is it going to? Is it good? Is it worth my time as opposed to something else? So I quit stuff like that all the time. I'll tell you about one thing I quit that involved you and me. Uh, and this was back in, it's a while ago, but it's back in 2008. I started a website where you were involved in it. You were kind of writing about it a little bit on Freakonomics called junglesmash.com. Oh, yeah, junglesmash. Where we were auctioning off, not auctioning off, but we were basically, uh, I was throwing a contest every month. I'd pick a brand like Crest and throw who can come up with the best Crest commercial. And then I would judge and give out $2,000 to whatever the best Crest commercial was. And, you know, I did Crest. And what was your drinks. business model for that? How eventually I would go to brands. You like go Crest, to Crest and say, "Hey, and say, do you this want to be the company this month?" Yeah, right, right. I thought it was a good business model. It's just other things were happening in my life. Most of the time, I quit. Things. I like the idea. Yeah, it's would still you try a good it idea. again, or do you think that I would still try it again? I think it, I think someone should try it. I think it's a good idea. Where this conversation is going, nobody knows. Stick around to find out. We just have to take a short break. Today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Charm podcast. And this is very special to me because Jordan Harbinger, the host, not only have I been on his podcast, he's been on my podcast. The guy has an incredible story. I mean, literally talking himself out of hostage situations, succeeding with this incredible podcast. The podcast is packed with wisdom from how to become more productive and professional to how to read body language, network, negotiate. Personal growth shouldn't be so boring all the time, and this addictive podcast is an engaging resource to learn from the best. I personally listen to this podcast almost every day. 
Topics have included how to create confidence, how to get people to like and trust you, how to keep things fresh in relationships, productivity, time management, biohacking. Heck, I've hacked my bio all the time. You can read a different one on Wikipedia every day. Basically, anything that will help you upgrade your brain so that you can become a high performer both at home and at work. Guests have included familiar voices, including Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, our recent guest host, Brian Koppelman, and me. You deserve an extraordinary life. Go to theartofcharm.com slash podcast or find The Art of Charm in iTunes or Stitcher and start taking your life to the next level. We really enjoy this show, and I personally think you will as well. So what advice would you give for people generally to be better at assessing their own things, whether it's a work thing, a personal thing, a hobby thing, to know whether it's worth quitting? It's very important to have a committed, I'll call it a committed devil's advocate. Mm. And I'm getting this a little bit from Adam Grant's book, New Book Originals. Right. Um, But someone who actually really does not like what you're doing, Mm. who you respect, who can explain to you, you don't have to listen to them. I mean, you don't have to agree with them, but just listen to what their arguments are and and consider it from their point of view. That sounds sensible, but I would also argue, thinking back in my own life and career, when I was um, just starting as a writer, I just moved to New York, and I was for some reason writing a play in addition to the other stuff I was writing, and I, I liked the theater, and I was really passionate. I thought I had an idea that I thought would be a really good play. I went off by myself to some little place upstate to rent a room for a few days. I just wanted to get total isolation. Very turned, writerly of you. Turned out it was like a room in a wing of this kind of weird hippie monastery where there was one guy and 20 women, and it turned out to be not the right vibe for what I was going for. But and it was freezing. What was the place called for our our listeners who I want think to be it was the one guy? Like the palace or something, but it had a you know kind of a Hindiish name to it. It was not the kind of place that I really wanted to be writing my play, and it was really cold. There was no heat, and so the only place where there was heat was to come out in the public area where all the people were, which I didn't want. Anyway, that was that was totally tangential. So I wrote probably twenty, thirty, forty pages of this play. And um, I had a friend at the time, a man who was in his 80s, so, you know, a few generations ahead of me, who was a playwright. He'd written um, he'd written a lot of stuff with Bud Schulberg, who was a great writer, and they'd written, they were working on a musical of oh. On the Waterfront at the time. Bud Schulberg had written, you know, What Makes Sammy Run. And, oh, yeah, you know, I've recently read that. That was a yeah, great no, book. Bud Schulberg was a great writer, and this guy was his writing partner, but this guy was a, a playwright on his own as well. Lovely guy. And I just moved to New York. Like I said, he had kind of taken me under his wing a little bit because I was a young guy who liked writing for the theater, and there aren't there weren't that many. And I gave him my uh, pages to read. We went out over dinner. It was me and him and my girlfriend at the time, and I'll just remember he was, like, so unbelievably dismissive of it. And it just made me feel like he was dismissive of everything about it, the choice of the story itself, the way it was done. And granted, he was probably totally right, I was bad. I was just beginning. I'd never written a play before. I'd read a bunch. I'd never written one. But it so discouraged me that I that I put it in a drawer, burned it probably, and I never tried to write a play again. So I think that it's a good idea what you're saying to look for the committed devil's advocate, but especially when you're dealing with someone who's trying something that's new or hard, you don't want to quash the instinct to do it. Well, I think that, it's that's a different fine issue. Line. And we spoke about this with Manoush, actually, in our po- one of our podcasts with her. Um, you have to be also 
Find oh. a committed devil's advocate who's good at constructive criticism. So this guy not only he squashed the play, criticism. he he right, he sucked at constructive criticism. He ruined your entire desire to to write a play. So I think he felt so bad afterwards that he paid for dinner. Uh, he probably did pay for dinner. He also, when he moved ultimately to Florida, he gave me all his scripts on paper, not the ones he'd written. He had a collection of hundreds of plays, you know, in those little paperbacks that. Um, the yeah. theater people use. So that was um that was nice of him, but it really um it's a fine line because I think that you what... have to do it though because again, assume the guy is good at constructive criticism because so many people have the smoking crack bias uh or whatever you call it, you have to have someone outside who's not just a devil's advocate for the heck of it, but actually really believes you're doing something wrong. I hear you, but here's the thing. I've long advocated quitting. I've long talked about the sunk cost fallacy also. So I'm plainly on the side of people like Joe Kabloom who says, you know, what, what's la- you know, who, who wants to think about quitting productively. I'm totally on that side. All I'm saying is that it is a real dilemma of knowing when to give something up that you think that you have a passion or talent or appetite for. It's, it's, very, it's a very hard calculation. You can kind of measure the opportunity cost of what you'll get if you give it up against the sunk cost, but it's a very hard thing to do. So I think what I would like to do on as we wind this up is try to encourage people, in addition to the devil's advocate um, or the devil's, what do you call them? The devil's? Uh, like a committed devil's in advocate a, who's right. good at constructive criticism. Right. So in addition to that person, I'm just curious whether you have any other like metrics or indicators. Yes. Yeah. So first off, when you're first starting something like writing a play, you have to understand that almost by definition, there's going to be a gap between what you do and the works you admire. So if the works you admire are being done by somebody who's written plays for 20 years or five years or 10 years or whatever, so you have to assume there's a gap and you have to respect the gap, as they say. So you have to give yourself permission to be bad for a while. It means you should fail fast when you're first starting something and maybe be a little more persistent and stick with it in in future years or or incarnations of your ability. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think another heuristic is for most activities that are not hobbies, if you're not making money at what, you, at what you're doing or pursuing after three or four years, you should probably stop. You should probably switch. Let me ask you this. If people are thinking about quitting something that's not necessarily a business thing, that's more like a hobby or playing a musical instrument, a sport, blah, blah, whatever it is, do you think it's a good idea to not quit until you have something, a good replacement? No, I think it's okay to quit because you don't know. You, ha- you need to have space in your life to find the replacement. Because mm-hmm. so, you know there are people like who break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse, whatever. Like There are people who will never break up with someone until they know like the next lily pad. Those people could end up being very unhappy. They could just... They're it, lily Because Exactly, because they're going to stay in something and not give the time to be right. alone and breathe and make space in your life to meet somebody new that you like. Or maybe stay too long in the one situation because you don't have the next one lined up. I think if you spend a certain amount of time, like let's say one, two, three years where you're unhappy doing this activity, it's probably not a good activity. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, know, might not, you might not be happy writing plays for the first year because nobody likes it because you have too many of those guys telling you this is bad. Bastard. But, but stick with it for long enough for you to say, okay, this is clearly not, I loved plays and theater. It's clearly not for me. I'm not improving in some way because it's not working out. 
You have to have some metric of saying whether it's working out you for know, you. Like your golf interest, if you stayed at a 20 handicap for five years, you still might love it. Nah. But it's not going to be as fun if you're not improving. So you have to have growth. And when growth sort of stops or goes, reverses or levels off, it's not it's not fun anymore. It's interesting because um, in the last few months, um, I haven't quit that much. I'll tell you one thing I quit lately was um, I quit pretending I like to drink wine. I have quit that as well. I hate wine. It's, it's a and I realize taste. I've always hated it. It's fermented grape juice. I do like some fermented things. I just don't really like wine. I can handle it's it, basically, but I don't like it. Right, it's basically foul grapes. It's foul grapes. So I'd I rather that. drink vanilla milkshakes. I can never mm, understand. Well, who wouldn't? Come on. I can never understand. Like, I'll, I'll go to a bar and order a milkshake if that's an option. Way to go. I there like whiskey, though. I'm not saying I don't drink. Oof. Yeah. I hate that too. Beer? How do you feel about beer? Ugh, oh, I, see, I hate see it that's all. the thing. I like some alcohol. I just I don't like wine. And uh for years I you know, you go to dinners sometimes where they're serving wine and you figure it's what you drink, unless you're not drinking anything at all, which is fine. And um at a certain point I was at a dinner, it was a business dinner, and I was kind of the I was supposed to be presenting a little something there. And they had uh it was a pretty fancy thing, and the only alcohol they had was wine. And I said, oh, I don't like wine. Or I probably didn't. That sounds rude. I probably said I— You, probably, you were whining about wine I was there. whining. I probably said, you know, I, I'd like a drink, but I'd, I'd rather not wine. Can I have either a beer or some, you know, do you have some whiskey or something? They said, no, we only have wine. I said, how can you only have wine? I hate wine. And apparently they'd never run across anybody who admitted to hating wine before. So so, so they threw me out yeah, so my you, meeting. Right. So you, you, you were out on the street. I you lost. Had to find, you had to go to a bar. So let's say— Quitting means losing sometimes. Well, you had to give yourself permission, though, to be able to say, oh, you know what? Uh, you had to be skeptical of what everybody else does every day. And you gave it's yourself not like per- I'm some rebel. Not right, like I'm just, saying, hey, I think that, you know. You just gave yourself permission to be honest about this thing. That, that You know what else I quit lately? This particular episode of Question of the Day? No way. I love this one. I'm keeping going. I quit trying within my family to prove that I'm right. So when I'm at home with my wife and kids, and, you know, two kids, a wife, there's four people, so there are a lot of different dynamics going a lot of different directions. For whatever reason, I was always the kind of person, the kind of husband, the kind of dad who, like, if there was a decision being talked about or being made, like, if I knew that the decision that I had was the right one, I would just, like, insist that we do the thing that was right. And I realized after a bunch of years that that is stupid. Yeah, you it doesn't do get that. me what I want. It creates tension you for everybody win. else. You can't win. I mean, this is broader than just families. I mean, being right, I mean, look at politics. It's absolutely no guarantee of winning any argument or winning any ever. decision ever. So, you know what I don't want you to quit, though, is just because you're one point down in backgammon <sighs> after hundreds and hundreds of points over the past 14 years, I don't want you to quit our match in backgammon. We'll answer another question tomorrow. Hear what it is right after this. Thanks again to today's sponsor, The Art of Charm Podcast. The Art of Charm teaches powerful life skills such as influence and persuasion. Host Jordan Harbinger brings together entrepreneurs, artists, thinkers, leaders, and all-around interesting people to discuss relationships, attraction, life hacking, and success. You deserve an extraordinary life. Go to theartofcharm.com slash podcast or find The Art of Charm in iTunes or Stitcher and start taking your life to the next level. We really enjoy this show and I personally think you will as well. Mm 
Hope you enjoyed this episode of Question of the Day. Please join us for the next one. Here's what we have lined up. What is the number? And I'm sure you've done some research on this. People always say, what's your number? But I think just in general, what's the number to quit your job and watch TV for the rest of your life? (laughs) 